We've all heard of mindfulness, but what is mindlessness? This webinar is a fantastic place to learn about the concept and to understand how it can be applied to coaching. Today's episode is based on a webinar we held in March 2018 as part of our regular weekly webinar series. It also happens to be one of our newest trainers, Kamal's favorites, and she actually said it was one of the reasons why she decided that Kocharya was the right place for her to study to become a coach, which is awesome because we love her. So here it is, our podcast on the webinar on mindlessness. Hi, um, <clears throat> this is the colloquium for the month of March in 2018. Uh, we had someone else planned for the colloquium today as a speaker, but uh, he was not well. Uh, so about 10 days ago, it's something that I've been thinking for a while. Uh, but for whatever reason, there were some internal barriers, I guess. So I didn't really want to have a session on mindlessness. And when I chose to sort of said we would have that, um, uh, the person that I thought best to have as my interlocutor, as it were, was Cindy, because despite the fact that we work so closely together, I don't think Cindy quite agrees with me on the concept of mindlessness. He has some reservations about what mindlessness is about. Even earlier today, she sent me a mail saying, um, can I ask these questions? I said, of course. Um, Hold my feet to the fire, uh, which would also be a different Cindy that we would be seeing today because normally she is totally the opposite of me. Uh, very nurturing, uh, very compassionate. And uh, before we start, I also would like to make a reference to Fiona. Um, I, I, I just had the opportunity to speak to Fiona today and I heard uh, a video of her about a few weeks ago, and I, I would very strongly recommend every one of you to go to her website, Fiona, Adam, Fiona Adamson. Um, and later, if you need, I'll, I'll send out the email ID uh, or the name. Uh, I, I was so struck. Uh, rarely um, did I walk out. Do I walk out with a feeling of uh, that kind of a presence? And she was truly present. And today when I talked to her, it was even more evident. And she was pretty unashamed to talk about love in respect to coaching, which I thought was tremendously refreshing. Because each one of us has some, something in the backdrop which prevents us from using those kind of words uh, in coaching. Um, truly a master. And in International Coaching Week, I requested her whether she would be able to participate. She readily agreed. So... We have Fiona today, and later, uh, during the conversation, Fiona, at any point in time, please unmute yourself and um, let us have your feedback as well. Uh, so today we have this uh, topic, which is mindlessness uh, or mindless awareness in coaching. Uh, the password, the first password is uh, Ram. I'll give you the last password uh, at the end of the session for ICF uh, CCU purposes. Um, so, Cindy, in terms of holding my feet to the fire, where would you like to start? <laughs> I'm going to start. Hi, everyone. I'm still going to be nurturing and warm 
and loving and ask the same questions that I want to. My questions are predominantly raising from questions that coaches ask, whether it's in mentoring or during our coach training around the topic of mindfulness or mindlessness. And of course, with the full background that coaching has many layers to it, and that the deeper we get into it, or more thought-provoking it becomes, the more the layers begin to unpack, right? Going into more depth or more into the beingness of a person. So with this background, I ask this question. Of course, the dictionary has some explanations of what mindless is. And we all more in tune with, or coaches more describe what mindful is as a state of consciously being or actively being aware of everything around you and making conscious choices about what to put aside and what to focus on at that's present in that moment. So Ram, I guess my first question to you is, what do you see as the distinction between mindfulness and mindlessness? Okay. Um, I, I'm not ducking the question, but let me put it together in the form of a, a story, in a sense, an autobiographical story. Um, some eight, nine years ago, uh, after almost about 40 plus years of corporate leadership experience, where I had run very, very large companies, uh, advised governments and so on. Uh, when the first thoughts of starting up something like Pocharia happened to me, uh, the first cho choice that I had in front of me uh, was really what I was trained to do, which was to make a business plan. Granular, all details, Excel sheets, marketing, technical logistics, and all that kind of a stuff. And so everything would be there neatly in place. And so when I was talking about that with, to my son, he said, yeah, yeah. And of course, you need to have a proper projection, all that kind of a stuff. So yeah, um, five-year projections split down to year, year split down to quarters, quarters split down to month, and if possible, to days, why not? Then I look back at my own experience. I said, how wasteful this exercise has been in all my life and how much of a mirage it had been. Because no company I know, and I don't think anybody here, if I really hold their feet to the fire, would be able to justify a company where anybody who's got those kind of plans have ever fulfilled them. Expenses always overshoot predictions. Prof, earnings always are less than what you project. And so what you have is an absolute mess. And that is what a business plan is. And you still justify and you go ahead. I remember during my corporate career, one of my bosses telling me, I don't mind if you do not meet your projections, but if you, oh, sorry, exceed your projection, but if you don't meet your projections because you have taken a very challenging target, I would hold it against you. I said, thanks a lot, I quit the company. Because those kind of companies do not even allow you to think big. And I was looking at twice what I, that company was doing, and I achieved pretty much 75% of that twice, but that wasn't good enough for him. 
So when I started Coach Arya, even the thoughts of it came up. I looked at it completely differently, thanks to almost about eight, nine years of deep dive into the Hindu Buddhist philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, coming back to the question that you asked, what I would have done was something very mindful, very conscious, very aware, very granular, very in the moment, split it down to our uh, days, if possible, hours and minutes. Some people go to even that extent. That is mindful. Whereas what I looked at was something very different. It was a vision that I wanted for myself as my creation. It was a vision that I wanted to create for people I'm going to serve. What is it going to be? 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, maybe after I die, what is it going to be? How will it emerge? And that was a holistic picture in which a number of things came in. Some of it had to do with, of course, some performance factors, wealth creation and so on, goals to be achieved. But that was a very, very small factor. The larger part of it was things like, what service will I provide? What learning will I have? What relationships will I create? What joy will I get out of it? for myself and other people and stuff like that. There was a number of things which came around. So I built something which was fuzzy. I had this vision, which had nothing granular in it, which was long-term. And what I derived out of it was just about certain guidelines that I want to move towards. And those guidelines were very, very important to me. One was that I wanted to build a community I want a community of people who would work with me in training facilitation, but at the same time create a much larger learning community, which in turn will sort of flow into this training community, a family, if so to speak. The second was, I wanted to offer the learners in a very, very customer-centric way, whatever best we could offer in terms of multiple credentials, in terms of multiple options, multiple learning opportunities, whatever it is. And there was not even one factor out there which had to do with profits or how my profits will scale up, etc. All that I was very clear about is that I do not want any investors because they are prison guards and I would be the prisoner. And I don't want to take any debt. So I have to build it on a model which is pure and simple brick and mortar where if I don't make money that month, I, don't, I can't spend. If somebody is doing something here, screen sharing, can you please stop it? Hello. Oh my God. I, I don't know. Someone, please, all of you, stop meddling with the uh, uh, system. I'm not sure how this was allowed. Uh, anyhow, uh, so coming back to what I was saying, it was just built around these factors, just on one principle which had to do with the financials, which was that it would be something where I would spend money based on what I earn, if it didn't grow. And that is how I started. The first 25 that I had started this program with back in 2011-12 was actually in a university, in a campus, college campus, where they offered it to me free because all the services I was providing them. And the whole set of participants, we sat outside and we had packed lunch delivered from there, which was as cheap as possible from uh, Harish is somewhere here. He was the leader of that whole pack, brought them together, promote this year, a few others from that gang who were there. And that is what we sat down because 
for whatever reason, everybody decided we would squat on the floor, lean against the walls and eat, whatever. That's what we did. And that is how today we have reached probably, along with various other things, about in about six, seven years, over a thousand people. And it's growing across the world. It will grow now exponentially with a number of people. And that to me is what I call mindless. Because it is a total opposite of what I would have done in terms of a mindful uh, business plan. The mindlessness came about from the side point that I was not really the creator, that I am just a catalyst, I'm a witness, I'm an observer to what is happening there. And that is what I interpret as the, the mindless uh, approach to these things. I don't know how clear it is, uh, Cindy. If you or anybody else has any questions, you can open up your chat box and look at questions as they arise. And if you would like to take that further. Yeah, I'd like our like participants on the call to ask questions. Um, so, so Ram, what I'm gathering is from what you're saying is that there had to be a more evolved kind of awareness process going on, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure whether it is evolved. Uh, I, I don't want to arrogate myself to uh, that. No, in no, no. Evolve from what currently was in your space, as you're describing, around the various tasks um, and reporting and whatever you had to do. So from that, something else had to happen. Well, it wasn't transactional. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I was not interested in the minute of, I have to make this much of money, this much would be profit, this much would be expenses, and so on and so forth. I didn't, I didn't really want to deal with anything like that. That, people who can, I can hire an auditor to do it. I can hire clerical staff to do it. That was not my job as a visionary founder of a company. So coming back to it, mindfulness is excellent for people who want to do clerical jobs. And I think it'd be fantastic. But anyone who aspires to be a leader, if they are still going to be in that mindless space of looking at the nitty gritties, I think they are missing something seriously. Hmm, I see no questions on the chatters yet. Hmm. So coaches, if anybody wants to share, please do go ahead. Ram, you got a few questions there. Um, did you have a vision when you dreamt of Kocharya? Isn't that a part of creation and not just being part of something? Yeah, well, okay, let, let me try and address this some, somewhat differently. I, I want to bring in uh, certain influences that I had. Uh, mm -hmm. Ramcharan had asked, is it about the Vedanta? Probably not Vedanta alone, all that. Uh, yes, to a large extent, I was influenced by the Upanishads. I was influenced by Zen. I was also equally influenced by um, Jungian psychology. I was influenced by neurobiology, uh, quantum physics. So there was a whole range of things that I was influenced by. So I can take one by one to, um, uh, yeah, Fiona has asked a very, very good question. Are there moments where mindfulness is useful and mindlessness is useful? Absolutely. I'll, I'll just cover that in a slightly different way. If you take the Jungian psychology, what, I re what resonated for me was 
Freudian Jungian, the id, ego, and superego, or the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious, or collective consciousness, and whatever you talk about. Essentially, mindfulness would fit in the realm of the ego state or the conscious state, where when we are looking at things which at this point in time need to be done, they need to be done very effectively, which are transactional, I think mindfulness is extremely effective. You need to be there. And I'll later come to it in the same space in the Hindu and Buddhist spirituality aspect as well. But whereas uh, when you go beyond that into stages of deep reflection, it's not the conscious state which helps you. It's unconscious state, the collective unconscious state. These are the things which influence you. And therefore, tremendous creation takes place in those spaces. Far more than, I'm not saying that it cannot take place in the uh, awareness and mindful state, but you would find, as Jung said somewhere so beautifully, that it's unconscious mind which makes the best choices and, and creates the best opportunities. And that's what it does. It's unconscious space that it does it. And the mindlessness really takes you through the unconscious space into a space beyond that. Very simply that. If any of you have any questions, I can answer that. And today, uh, there are many advances in that, and we can go into depth in it. At the neurobiological level, the trion theory or whatever theory you want to follow, there is a reptilian brain alarm complex, which is about the long-term memory and the instinct. There is a middle-level limbic brain, which is about emotions, where amygdala and hypothalamus are great parts of the emotional part of the brain. And then there is the prefrontal cortex, which is the cognitive brain, which only the humans and the primates have the fortune to have. Now, the sensory apparatus that we have, the five senses, are really connected to the middle brain, to the hypothalamus and the amygdala. And normally, what happens is the hypothalamus senses conveys it to the prefrontal cortex. And collectively, that then activates what is known as the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenaline, and gets us into movement. But when the amygdala gets excited, if you are too emotional, it blocks that pathway. So pretty much you are blind, you are blindsided. And <clears throat> the emotions take over, and the hypothalamus directly con conveys uh, orders to the adrenaline, uh, to the hypothalamus, uh, pituitary, and so on. So again, here, there, there, is, there is certainly, that is where Fino's question, to be able to be aware when your amygdala is bypassing you, overpowering you, when your emotions control you rather than you control the emotions, and you need to be getting into a certain state of awareness and consciousness, and mindfulness certainly fits in there. But once you've done that, is there a possibility that you can always keep the amygdala under control? So rather than the emotions affecting you, is it possible for you to rise to a level where you're able to see them as sort of waves in the sea, they are happening, or clouds in the sky, they are happening, but I'm just a witness, I'm just an observer. That is the high level of mindlessness, which the Hindu scriptures describe so beautifully, and what Zen calls the no-mind state. This is a state, the, the way that the Hindu scriptures describe it, in the Upanishad, there's an Upanishad called the Mandukya Upanishad, which talks about it in detail, just 12 verses. And it's one of the most powerful scriptures ever written. There's no mention of the word of God in any of them. It's all about energy. And there, the first level of awareness is the mindful awareness. And that is what is recognized as a first level of awareness. Without it, there is no awareness. 
and that is physical awareness. Like as I'm speaking, I'm aware that I'm speaking and I identify with me as Ram who is speaking. At the next level, there is a dream state of awareness. At the dream state of awareness, I can, I can feel, I can sense, but I may not identify with myself. For instance, if I dream that somebody is trying to murder me, I may wake up in a nightmare with all the shock of senses, but I don't have any physical effects on me. It's happening in a kind of completely different plane of awareness. And in the Hindu philosophy, this is called the pranic awareness. At the third level, that's somewhat equated to the subconscious. The third level is a deep unconscious, where in fact, Mahesh Yogi formed his entire theory of transcendental meditation, that the, it is not that we are completely unconscious, but the deep unconscious level, the same way the autonomous system works, there is a thought process that's also working. There are seeds of thought that arise like bubbles at the bottom of the ocean. But when they reach the top of the ocean at the surface, they might turn out to be tsunamis. That's really what happens in the human mind. If somehow we are not able to reform our thoughts at that stage, we end up in deep traumas, which causes tremendous harm when they come out. And there are ways and means how do you avoid it. And so this keeps shifting because your sleep is never fully deep sleep. It's partly REM sleep, it's partly deep sleep. So you keep shifting between these two stages of dreams and unconscious mind. It's, it's a very complex process and there is deep learning that can be obtained from there. And then the final stage, it has no name. It is just called as a fourth stage. It's called the Turiya. At that state, what you are is a witness. You are an observer. You rise above the confusion that is happening out there, perhaps, your emotional and cognitive confusion, and you're overseeing it. In fact, that is what supervision should be at, the capital super of vision or hearing or whatever it is. So you are about that and you're able to see that happening. And that is what interested me. And I did a lot of work on it, personally experimenting on myself with various uh, gadgets and uh, brain waves and things like that. At what various levels, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and the, the whole of it, then I put together as mindlessness. In Zen, the same thing is called no mind. So when we conceived of Kocharya, the word came to me as an epiphany, as it were. I was looking for another word to describe Koch in the Indian uh, context. And the word that came up to me was the word Palacharya, which in Sanskrit means one who walks by your side. He's not a teacher. He's not a mentor. He's just a person who walks alongside you, who mirrors you. And if you need him, you contact him. And that is what the word Acharya means. And the coach and Acharya together became Kocharya. And fortunately, my son and my daughter are too. So we said we'll go with that name. And there was this young friend of uh, uh, them who designed the logo, which was the best thing that happened to us. And he described it so beautifully. I just sat down with him for half an hour and explained to him what I'm talking about. And he created this with a circle at top, an infinite, infinity symbol. The circle is a zero, which describes the zeroness of the mind-body awareness. When you are in that state that I wish to be, which almost looks like a yogi meditating, there is no mind awareness, there is no body awareness, there is no ego, there is no judgment. 
You are full of energy and that's what is infiniteness. And that is what the Hindu scriptures talk about. And that's what the Buddha talked about. Unfortunately, some guy who had no clue about probably half knowledge about Pali language interpreted a word that Buddha had used as sati, which meant memory, into this word called mindfulness. And that became the jargon. That became everybody's favorite piggyback. Mindfulness in the scriptural framework, Eastern scriptural framework, has a negative connotation because memory is a baggage. And even in the Western psychology, if you look at Freud and Jung, you know that, Cindy, very well. The unconscious part of it is all negative memories, by and large. Freud, of course, said it's all totally useless, dirty, whereas Jung took a slightly different view. But still, it's usually the traumas which are accumulating out there. So same way in the Hindu Buddhist theology and spirituality, the memory is, is not a good word. And, for what, and, and when Buddha talked about it, it was completely in a different context. So it became mindfulness, and now people have formed huge businesses around this whole concept of mindfulness. So when I talk to them saying that this is not mindfulness, they say, no, no, you are just playing around with words and semantics. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. So at this point in time, any, any um, uh, question, and then we will take it into how this can be connected to coaching and why. And there are a lot of questions out here I find extraordinarily esoteric. What are your thoughts on how the state of transcendental transpersonal content? I, I'll be damned if I know. Um, that's all I can say. But uh, the thing is, yeah, let me explain what I mean by it. I, I don't want to get into these esoteric definitions of words and so on. Dharmesh asked, uh, to get unconscious competency, one needs to practice the competency consciously. Uh, mindfulness proper. I don't think so. That is exactly the point. Uh, it, it is not something like Cindy would know. We are training a lot of people here. There are people present who are working towards a mastery. Mastery is not a conscious process at all. It's very much an unconscious process. There has to be something deeply embedded in you in terms of that structure and then forgetting the structure. And it drives you. And that is when you operate without the influence of the structure within you. Following the structure is at best a PCC competency. But somehow embedding the structure in yourself in an unconscious way, moving beyond that is a mindlessness uh, competency. That is that what happens. And in coaching, the reason why I call the coach the mindless coach is earlier, and again, Cindy would know this, that when I see a defined 10 scales, the 10th scale was about the invisible coach. Invisibility didn't mean that coach would be silent. Then no assessor would be able to assess that coach. Invisibility meant the coach was invisible in terms of his ego, in terms of his judgment, in terms of his mind. And the coach was there purely in presence, reflecting the client, being a mirror to the client. That is all the role of the coach is. And in that he embodies all that I saw Fiona perform, love, compassion, and at the same time reflection from the, from, the, from the client. And that is when coaching mastery happens. So the mindless coach to me is one who transcends that level of cognition, that level of conscious awareness, that level of sensory perception, but somehow is still able to feed it back 
in, in such a way that a client is able to do it. Carl Rogers described it so beautifully. He says, unless the coach is aware, the client can never be aware. And if the coach is in a mindless state, that is an answer to Ramcharan's question. If the coach is truly aware and the coach is communing with the client rather than conversing with the client, and that is when this would happen. Now, if you ask me, how does communion happen? Darned if I know. <laughs> that is something which comes up for you when you deeply believe in it, when you deeply embed those competencies within you. That is when it happens. It doesn't happen when you are studying the competencies like a primer as an ACC or in some kind of structured practice as in PCC. I'm not denigrating any of these. These are stages that you have to move out of. You have to master them first, move out of. And that is where I think mindfulness is also a state that we have to master. We need to be masters of the capability of mindfulness and then move to that state of mindlessness where if desired, when required, you can come down to the transactional state and be able to attend to it and then move back into that state where you are in supervision. I'll, I'll stop here for any questions. Mm. I think the first is a reflection point from me and based on what coaches are also writing on the chat, I think many of them are reflecting on what we are talking about. It seems like there are moments of or relating to periods in our life, we have moments of mindfulness and moments of mindlessness, different states of consciousness or awareness. So I'm wondering how we would translate all this when coaching people or coaching our clients in a space where there's so many everyday dynamics happening, where, you know, there's all these... Um, Best, best way for me to describe it is VUCA elements in the, in the world and in executive coaching, all this is rising all the time. What coach, what client? So it's a rhetorical question and perhaps a reflective one too. How do we coach within that space? Sine, I can only tell you about what I do. Hmm. Uh, for me, I have been a meditator. I've been a teacher of meditation for a long period of time. So that background in meditation, being able to get myself into a state where I can be disengaged. Now, many people misinterpret meditation. Mindfulness and mindful meditation to me is an oxymoron. In yoga, which is where the word meditation is coming from, and Buddha picked that up and Zen became uh, the paradigm for meditation. There are eight competencies. This is called Ashtanga Yoga, eight limbs of the yoga. The first four are external yoga. They are the preliminaries to be able to reach into the depths. And the first four are very mindful activities. It's about body awareness. It's about breath awareness. It's about certain rules and regulations that you have to observe and all that stuff. It's very necessary. It's a precursor to what you need to. It's the same way as in coaching, that you need to master the competencies, ACC, PCC, etc. You need to know what the markers are. And then you go into the second level where you consciously give up all that. You move beyond the senses. The senses are supposed to be the prisons, and therefore you move out of the senses. By what you do is concentrate on one sense at a time to be able to develop the ability to focus on the five to one. Then you give up those senses 
that's called pratyahara in Sanskrit, and then you move into the harana in Sanskrit, I'm sorry. Then you move into the space called dhyana, which is meditation, where instead of the senses, you focus on the cognitive ability. So you repeat something, you think of something, you visualize something, whatever it is, that becomes your meditative practice. But that is a penultimate level of yoga. That's a penultimate level of awareness. That is not the highest level of awareness. Then you move to the last state, which is called the Samadhi, which is the highest level. In Zen, it is called the no mind. Where you transcend that thought into that space where you are just a witness of those thoughts. I'm no longer the creator. I'm just observing that happening. But that doesn't, as somebody said, does mindlessness preclude mindfulness? No. I have the option at any point in time to come down into that space, dip and go back. So it has, I have the ability, but if I'm stuck to the ground, I don't have the ability to elevate. But if I'm in an elevation, I have the capability to come down. So the mind, mindlessness is a higher level of awareness than mindfulness. It is like an MCC coach has all the potential of a PCC coach and an ACC coach but an ACC and PCC doesn't have. If you want to use that metaphor, a mindlessness person would have the competencies of the mindfulness built into it, whereas a mindfulness kind of person will not have the competencies of the mindlessness built into it. So, in terms of how do you achieve it in a Konchi conversation? And you know that, I know that, we keep talking to people. Don't paraphrase on what the client is saying. Just listen to the client. Just pick up a few words. Just mirror that back into the client and ask the client, what's happening out there? You don't have to add any spice to it. You are just being a mirror, not a corruptive mirror, but a pure, simple mirror. That's all that you need to be. That is where the invisibility comes from. That's difficult for us because that's not the way we are trained. We need to add our two bits to everything. And that is what prevents us from reaching that mastery in coaching. If that we have to just look at it purely, completely identifying with the client, all that we are doing is to serve the client. We are there at the service of the client, as Fiona would say, with love and compassion. And therefore, all I am doing is listening to the client and asking the client very simply, Hey, this is what you said. What does that mean for you? Would you like to reflect and go deeper? And invariably, if you accept that the client has that potential, you have the unconditional positive regard for that client, as Rogers would say, and you would get to that space where you create that because the barriers are internal. And those barriers can only be addressed by the client, not by me sitting outside, because I don't have a clue to what is happening in the mind of the client. Even if I think I'm catch whiskers, I'm a master practitioner, I'm an MCC or whatever. What do I know about what is happening in the mind of the client? And that is really the space that all of us as coaches should really aspire to. I don't know if I'm really making sense to uh, most people. Yeah. I you're saying Ram is about partnering and presence. How present are we to the client um, sitting there in front of us? 
Coaches, I'm uh, quite eager to hear from you, or we are quite eager to hear from you. What are you thinking about? What, what's going on in your thoughts? There is a question from Vijay. Uh, can you differentiate between the two as an everyday example? Very, very simple example. I don't know how many of you here are familiar with something called Six Sigma. The Six Sigma process is today used pretty much in most industries, especially in the IT industry and so on. And the Six Sigma is based on the principle of the Bhagavad Gita in one sense, that you're not working towards the outcome, you're working towards a process. So if I'm working on, let's say a project, whatever it might be, let's say I'm a software programmer, I'm working on it. And every moment I'm only thinking about what specifications I need to fulfill, I'm going to be stuck like a centipede trying to look at my legs when I'm crawling. I won't be able to move. I'm constantly stressed. Whereas if I'm able to move out of it, okay, these are the specifications I need. I know with my experience. And I just have it at some level, but I'm moving forward what I need to do in terms of that larger vision that I have. And that is what is mindlessness. The same thing if you translate into coaching, a coach who is constantly thinking about the outcome. Pretty much every question that coach has, an assessor can make out, is driven by performance anxiety. It is outcome oriented. We can make it out very, very quickly as assessors. When you move out of it, you are not bothered. You are holding a natural, spontaneous conversation, which is just flowing. And eventually you have the confidence that you have the structure and if you follow it, you will reach there. The various competency markers and the process, they are not built there to imprison you. They are built there to support you, to give you a larger framework. You don't have to put labels to it. You just need to understand why they are there. Why do you need to define the outcome? Otherwise, people can go all over the place. Why do you need to ask something about the measures of success? Because you need to have a definition of, for the client to evidence for himself or herself where she has reached. And the importance is, what is it that motivates you? Or the absence of which makes you afraid? And what is it about in terms of barriers that could potentially happen to help you go into a deeper exploration of all that? And finally, all this coming together, is that our common understanding? Are we there on the right track? And then you move up into the next stage. I describe coaching very often as a double-necked hourglass. The first hourglass, the client starts with all over the place. And it's your job as a coach to help the client come to a clearer understanding, not for you, but for the client. What is it I'm looking for? with what is I'm going to evidence, what is its importance, what are the barriers? And then you expand again into exploration, going into the mind of the client, asking about what's happening out there. What is it that you aspire to? What is it that is holding you back in terms of what you think you ought to be, what you should be, the values and the beliefs? And what are the emotions that are coming up for you? How do you visualize? And then you come to the second neck of the hourglass, which is about the awareness creation. And then you expand a little bit in terms of what action you need to take. And that is how the competencies, if you just look at them as that, you don't have to think about 
this is competency 2.15, all that nonsense. I just know that I have to start here, I have to reach here, I have to expand, I have to reach here. And then at the end of the day, the client comes up with what is it that the client needs to do to be able to reach there. And to me, that is a mindless process. It's not a mindful process. Because I'm not focused on the individual competency. Maybe semantically, if you want to call that a mindful process, that's fine too. It doesn't matter what label you put into it. The process is more important. Where are you in terms of that? Coaches, uh, coaches, I'm mindful of time. If I say mindless, then I wouldn't mind because time has no boundaries. But I'm mindful that we have limited time and I'd like you to share or say what's on your mind or raise any question, discussion points you may have. Besides the one on the chat, um, you know, unmute yourself and ask a question. Hi, Cindy. This is Tracy Prentice. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Ram, and everyone Hi. on the call. Hi. Um, I, I have, uh, I'm really delighted to um, be invited to the call, and thank you for the wisdom. Um, I have a question related to mindlessness. I think I understand it, or I try to understand it when I'm in coaching mode but I've recently gone back into an operational role within an organization. And mm. I'm wondering what wisdom both you and Cindy have about how to switch between the mindfulness that you can extend to someone in a coaching moment versus when you have to lead and drive a bit, because those are some other things that organizations ask us to do. And I, I don't know if it's relevant for others on the call. Um, it may be analogous to the same thing that Ram was just talking about with the hourglass is wide sometimes and narrow others, but I, mm. I can go back on mute and, and listen. Cindy, would you like to uh, say what you think about uh, the question? No. I'll leave it for you. Okay. Uh, Tracy, the way I look at it is like this. I don't think there is a much, there's much of a difference between what role you are in, whether you're in a coach, as far as I'm concerned, the way that I work, uh, or it's a work or a life situation. At every level, uh, as I said earlier, if you are in what I call the mindless state, where you are able to see a larger overview, a longer term, a larger transformational perspective without being clouded by the judgmental inputs that I have at that point in time in terms of what I think about that person, what I think about what the person did, then I get into a mindless state. And I don't want to really operate at the mindful state in any situation where to me means that I'm getting into a judgmental, a sensory perspective. Let me explain this. The classic one-on-one in mindfulness is, for whatever reason, they could have chosen any other thing, but they chose a raisin, for example. Invariably, if you go to any training session in mindfulness, they will pass it on a bag of raisins. And once in one of those sessions, I tried to take a few because I like raisins. They said, no, 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 only one. Anyway, 
that one I had to take out and then this trainer went on saying, okay, hold it in your hand, look at it and look for as long as you want and then take it in your nose, smell it and then put it in your mouth, taste it, feel it and so on and so forth. And then what did you find out? So everybody said anything and I said, oh, I heard the voice of the raisin. She got very upset because she thought I was being sarcastic and I was being sarcastic. If you had all those senses, four senses covered, what about the fifth sense then? Now the point is, when you get into that state, and I have worked with a number of people after that, who have been going through these mindful exercises, and I asked them, what did you do just about five minutes ago? They don't remember anything at all. And how is this mindfulness helping them? Are you so much in the here and now that the here and now finishes, another here and now in the next 30 seconds is another here and now, and another here and now, another here and now? Is that what mindfulness is? I don't know. I'm just asking a question. To me, it isn't. It doesn't help you in any way. The here and now itself is a very curious phenomenon. There is no such thing as a present moment. The moment I say present, the present has gone into the past. And before I say present, it's the future. So you are talking about a congruence of all these three things happening. And therefore, in coaching, we are looking at the past in the sense of how it is experienced by you at this point in time with a view to what you are doing in the future. All three senses have to be combined together. All three tenses have to be combined together. And that requires an overview. It's like... If you stand at the road level, you can see 10 feet on either side of you or three meters or whatever. And if you go up to a mountain, probably you can see a whole range of 100 miles or whatever it is spreading around you. Sure, you don't get the granular details, but you have an idea of what the terrain is, where you wish to go. It depends on what you really want to do. If what you want to solve at a point in time is something very specific, like putting thread to a needle, be very mindful. That's a very mindful activity. If you do it with mindlessness, you're going to prick your fingers and blood will flow out. I wouldn't advise you to be mindful there, mindless there. But if you're doing anything more, which is cognitive, which is a leadership kind of an operation, I would request that you consider the option of being mindless, not get too mindful, not too sense-oriented and see what is happening and that is what I would define as mindfulness I'm not as I said before um, mindfulness is a part of mindlessness whereas mindlessness is not a part of mindfulness it's a it's a, it's a larger part of which mindfulness is part yeah sorry yeah I'm so sorry the last two or three minutes the phone broke up badly I don't know if you could rewind just two minutes. Might be difficult, um, but I think that was the core of the business. recording. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Uh, to no, be honest, uh, thank you. I, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what I said, but basically what I said, Tracy, was that mindfulness is a part of mindlessness. And therefore, if you are mindless, you can always come down to the territory from the map and be able to see the ups and downs and be able to find out where the hurdles are. But at the same time, when you are up there in the mindlessness, you will be able to see them as well in terms of um, what is something happening there. 
uh, what the larger terrain is like. So what I, the example that I used was if you're putting a thread to a needle, I would strongly suggest that you are mindful. Or if you're giving someone an injection and you have to fix it, find an artery or vein or whatever it is to plug it into, then in that case, you need to be mindful. Otherwise, you're going to do some damage. But if you're doing something which is collective, which is more cognitive, which is more emotional, I would strongly recommend that you try to look at it from a mindless point of view, which is a disengaged point of view. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Because Tracy, that, that, that the example that you gave, that um, scenario, seems to repeatedly play out right now. It seems to be a very current space. Mm. And mm. what always stands out for me is how we as coaches show up especially in a session with as many dynamics happening with a client, how do we still maintain detached from different dynamics so that we can keep the session focused on what is it our clients want from the session? And sometimes that's much easier said than done. Mm. Mm. So, so I'm fully aware of the space that you're talking about and the repeated repeatedness offered as many coaches and clients share. Suni, can we have yeah. uh, somebody said, uh, Gopalji made a point, uh, very right. Uh, yeah. uh, if Fiona can combine it with, because this afternoon we also had a chat on mindfulness versus mindlessness. Uh, any observation that she has feedback comments, Fiona? Yes, um, I've just loved hearing all the dialogue, been fascinating, and thank you everybody. Uh, great listening and great comments. Um, it's, it's lovely because what I'm now more and more operating within is the concept of interpersonal mindfulness. And by that I mean a way to be in the moment with the person I'm with, group, individual, whatever. Um, and I hadn't thought of mindlessness until I read your piece on your website. And I thought, hmm, interesting, because I think when I'm working in an interpersonally mindful way, I, I, without really apparent effort, I can move into a more, if you like, transcendental position where we take up a third place, which is neither the other person nor me, but is somewhere in the dialogue. And it's difficult to describe, but so that's my version of mindfulness, it's interpersonal mindfulness. And I think that makes a difference because when I'm free from fear, accepting my vulnerability that I might make mistakes, I can kind of put that away and just be there. And my heart is open and their hearts are open because that's what we create together in the energy field. So I think the concept of interpersonal mindfulness is very relevant here. Absolutely. I, I don't disagree with you, Fiona, except that uh, if, if you're really semantically, if you're looking at it, um, uh, I would say it is different in the sense that when you talk about interpersonalness, uh, it's about being non-judgmental, it's being completely client-centered, it's going to be other-person-centered, and that is what I would interpret as mindlessness, because you are moving away from the ego, and, and to me, uh, mind. That's okay. I mean, I, I'm here. Uh, it, that, that's where sometimes there's a problem. Um, the way that mindfulness is interpreted as sensory, 
the way that you are talking about interpersonal mindfulness, you are going beyond the sensory, as you said, not me, not the other person, but something about that, the supervisory supervision position, which is what is mindlessness. I, I, I totally, I can't agree with you more, which is where there's a lot of confusion um, when many people, including Marshall, when I talked to him, and he said, oh, you're saying the same thing. Uh, when I'm mindful, I'm mindless. Okay. I, I, somehow, I find it difficult to sort of find out with the rest of it. But there is a part of mindfulness, which is mindlessness. I, I completely agree because it's one part of it. And someone, Harish, earlier made a statement, you progress from one to other. I completely agree. You need to progress from one to the other. Um, without being mindful, you cannot become mindless. Absolutely true. It's a state of progression. But you realize that what you're doing is something different from being mindful. When you are mindful, you would observe and criticize what the other person is doing. And the moment you become compassionate and loving, you are moving out of that space into a larger level where you're ignoring all that and you're focusing on that. So I would call that space, for whatever reason, mindlessness. But uh, the, the phrase that you use, personal mindfulness or something else, detached mindfulness, for example, maybe, transcendental mindfulness would to me mean the same thing as mindlessness. That's what uh, my thoughts are. Mm. Oh, okay, lovely. And, and just to add a little bit to that, uh, I have a, a little chat on the chat room about heartfulness. And for me, that's really one of the keys here. And you've used the word love and compassion. And I think when we become fearless, <laughs> we can love ourselves and love others more easily. And that state of being in love, if you like, in the state of being loved and loving, then mindlessness will just come because it's not relevant anymore to be mindful. You're just in a state of being. And that's such a precious state. And I think to learn to let go of all the shenanigans, that's a nice Irish word, uh, then we can allow that flow state. I can't remember the, to pronounce the chap's name, but we all know about flow states. Yeah. Yeah. So... Mm. Maybe that's just all I want to say at this moment. Thank you, Ram and Cindy. Thank Thanks, Fiona. That, that's absolutely correct. Earlier today, when I was talking to you, you used the word when I asked you. Uh, but I told you about my impressions of when I watched you. You said, uh, I, I'm, I'm no longer, something like that. I'm no longer concerned about the image that I present to other people. I'm confident in myself. And that is really the mindless state. Because I, I'm not bothered about measuring everything about whether I'm tasting the raisin, I'm smelling the raisin, whatever it is. I know that I have a larger viewpoint of that. And it doesn't matter how I appear. I, I'm pretty much whole in myself. And if I make a mistake, I make a mistake. I accept it. It's okay. But most of the time, it should flow. To me, the, uh, Vijay, can you, uh, uh, to me, the uh, issue that happens is that when people become too mindful, I think they, they are likely to be manic depressive. At one level, they might go into, uh, if really that is interpreted the way that mindfulness is being interpreted, that you have to be in the moment, you have to feel what you feel, and that is where you have to be. Many of us would be going into highs of like this. 
there are very few of us who got the maturity to be able to even it out, to be in the disengaged state. But you, we all know that that's not the way that we could really operate. And I am deliberately going into an extreme exaggeration to prove a point. And mm. people who are mindfulness fanatics, they would hate me for it. But, uh, but despite that, that, that what, what I'm trying to say that. It's a couple of other questions. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah some good questions there, Ram. But yeah. what I also want to say from what Fiona's describing around the heart space and loving space, yeah. and from the flow that you are talking about, it sounds like we're showing up as our authentic self. Yeah. And just being ourselves in the way we coach and accepting our clients as an whole resourceful person in that moment. Both in a beingness space. Sounds like mm, that's the yeah. space I'm talking about. I mean, there are many words being used here, and it sounds like it's all describing the same mindfulness, mindlessness. It sounds like people are just using different words to describe a state of being. Are you getting a sense of that? Yeah, it could be. Uh... That's why it is very difficult to try and separate the two in some sense, because one is part of the other. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it, and as somebody said here, perhaps not to be not good to be caught as a static concept. It's not. It's a very, very dynamic uh, concept. I completely agree with that. And it's about the flow and it's about the heart. And that is why it is called the mind. Uh, rather than mindlessness, I should say, really speaking, it's not in the brain, it's in the heart and probably in the gut. It's a combination, like the Chinese believe that our entire energy is in the gut. Uh, wisdom is in the gut. We think through the gut and that is how the whole meridian system is formed for them. So I, I don't know, maybe there's a truth in it. I have no idea what it is. Uh, but given that we are pretty much close to um, mm. the top of our, um, I, I think let, 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 let's uh, close here at this point in time. So this was not supposed to be a definitive kind of hypothesis or a thesis or whatever in mindlessness. It's purely to provoke thoughts. It is just to yeah. provoke. I'm having fun. This is what I told Fiona, that what I do, the first thing that I want to have is fun. I want to feel joyful. Uh, I mean, fun probably have a mischievous element to it. That's pretty true of me. But the point is, I, I want to shake that uh, space of mindfulness where everybody is so serious about it, so focused on it, they don't understand that it's a low level of awareness. There are higher states of awareness that is possible. That's all that we are pointing out. We're not pointing out that mindfulness is bad. It is just that they are higher state of awareness and please think about them seriously. And as a, if you are aspiring to be a master coach, I think it's essential that you shed your ego and that is all that mindfulness is about. So mm. we started with the first part, which is Ram. And the second part of the password is Cindy. So Ram Cindy will comprise a password. And we bid you au revoir. See you whatever the next session is in, in April. And thanks, Cindy. Thanks for being um, such a wonderful anchor. Thanks for all of you attending. Thanks, Fiona, for being there. It was lovely. Uh, and I don't know where the plan Pam is also there somewhere. I saw her. Tracy, thank you. Some of you who have taken the trouble to attend it from uh, pretty far away. Thank you. Yes, Cindy. Thank you, coaches. Yeah, well, well, I'm convinced that most of my brain is lodged somewhere in my gut. 
explanation why, but that's how it feels, and that my head feels always empty. Um, so, coaches, I don't know what space you are leaving in, but it's a wonderful start to a good conversation, right? And as we go along, we can keep discovering for ourselves what it really means to be present and being there for our clients. Lovely being with you and look forward to being with you again soon. Thanks, all of you. Once again, the password is from Cindy. Bye-bye. Take care.